Well, if you've been with us, you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And last week, we saw John the Baptist's ministry. Luke, on purpose, described John and described him in a way that placed him in the stream of Old Testament prophets. And Old Testament prophets, if you just go and read through the the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that they are most of the time, if not all of the time, calling someone to repentance. Uh, Usually it's the nation of Israel. They're letting the nation of Israel know that, that God is tired of them going through the motions tired of them being outwardly religious, but inwardly uh, really caring less uh, about God. And so that's really what John the Baptist came on the scene doing. He came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He wanted the people who were coming to him to be baptized, not just check off a box, uh, go be baptized, check off that box, and then go back to what they were doing before. He said, no, you, you need to truly repent, hate your sin, Turn to God, and you'll know that this repentance is true when you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so he was talking about caring for those who were less fortunate, told the tax collectors not to collect more money than you ought, and the soldiers not to extort money from people. Well, today's text uh, follows up on that. It's a continuation of that, and, and we see in here the baptism of Jesus. Today's text is Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along as I read and uh, keep them open as I go through the text because we'll be looking at specific phrases and words. And if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, if you use the Bible in the seats in front of you, you'll find one underneath. You'll find the text on pages 858 and 859. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, For Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So what we see here is that, kind of makes sense, John 
has come bursting on the scene. And, and though Luke doesn't really describe his appearance, and in some of the other Gospels, we, we hear that John looked a lot like Elijah. He, he was uh, a rugged-looking guy. He wore uh, camel's hair uh, for clothes, and he ate locust and wild honey for his food and, and wore a, a belt around his waist. He, he came out of the wilderness and was crying out, uh, for people to repent, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And according to scholars, during this time in Israel's history, there was great messianic expectation. I don't know why all of the reasons are, but if you were here during our Daniel series, you know that Daniel at least uh, prophesied that the Messiah's kingdom would be built and would be carved out of the mountain during the time of the Roman Empire. And so that could be part of the reason why messianic expectations were high. We know that Jesus warns his apostles that in Matthew 24 that many are going to come and say, I am the Christ. But he says, don't be fooled. We also know from the book of Acts chapter 5 that, that there was uh, when the, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Supreme Court were, were trying to shut down the apostles and keep them from preaching Christ, they were talking about what should we do with these guys, imprison them, kill them, what, what should we do? And, and a really wise member of the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, he says this, look, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Because before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispensed and came to nothing. And, and then after him, Judas the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Gamaliel was saying, look, there have been a lot of people that have popped up claiming to be the Christ. And they've, some of them have gathered a big following, but they were put down by Rome, they were killed, and their movement came to nothing. If this Jesus movement is like that, it too is going to amount to nothing. But if it's not like that, if this Jesus movement is from God, if he truly is the Messiah, then we're going to be opposing God in trying to stop this. Do you want that? That was a, a wise man. So perhaps it, it makes sense here, given this messianic expectation, that the people started wondering if John the Baptist was the Messiah. In fact, John records that they came to him and said, are you the Messiah? And he just responded, it says, John says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, years ago, a fellow pastor gave me a sermon. It was as I was being ordained, had just been ordained. It was right around the time when I was entering into uh, pastoral ministry as an ordained minister. And, and this uh, sermon that he gave me was by uh, a, a pastor named Gordon Hugenberger, who was pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. And the title of the sermon was, I Am Not the Christ. And it was based on this text. And he delivered it to these would-be pastors, these guys that were leaving seminary and going to take positions in churches. And he said, look, you need to understand, and you need to repeat over and over throughout the rest of your ministry, I am not the Christ. 
Because people are going to sometimes expect you to be. People are going to expect you to change their son or daughter's heart. People are going to expect you to fix their broken marriage. People are going to expect you to be at every church function. People are going to expect you to pray at every church function. People are going to expect that you are going to build Christ's church in your own power. He said, in fact, I would encourage some of you to, on purpose, stay away from some church functions. On purpose, don't pray at every church, because your church needs to learn you are not the Christ. And I would just submit to all of you that that's been a super important sermon for me that I have rehearsed again and again in my mind, but I would just throw that out to you. Because I would wager that some of you, as Christians, even though you're not pastors, have sometimes fallen into the trap of either thinking some other human being is the Christ, and expecting them to do things that only he can do, or thinking you can do something that only he can do. And wondering why the conversations that you have with your son or daughter doesn't change their heart automatically. Wondering why you can't convert your father-in-law. Well, you're not the Christ. John, the forerunner to the, Christ, to, to the Christ, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets said, I am not him. Don't expect me to do what only he can do. Now, John could have simply said that here, but John answers them with a comparison, and the comparison that he makes where he explains and shows why he is not the Christ, the comparison that he draws is between his baptism and Christ's baptism. Now, John says, I baptize you with water. It's interesting, that's all he says about himself. You know, I'm not sure, other than Jesus himself, if there's ever been a greater show of humility in the history of the world than this one statement by John the Baptist where he simply says, I baptize you with water. And then he moves on to describe all the things that Jesus does. Jesus himself, when he was talking about John the Baptist, he said, among, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, now that means every human being that's ever lived, despite what our modern culture will tell you, men cannot give birth. Among those born of women, which is everybody, none is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus would go on to say, I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus goes on to make a distinction saying, you Christians sitting here in this room, the least of you, because you have the Holy Spirit and you live post the resurrection and post Pentecost, are actually greater than John the Baptist. But what Jesus is saying is, prior to my coming to earth, no one, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Alexander the Great, not any of the pharaohs, not Caesar Augustus. No human being is as great as John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says about him. Think of how John could have spoken about himself and not been lying. 
If they came to John, he could have said, no, look, look, I'm not the Christ, but do you know who I am? I, I, I'm the forerunner to the Christ. I'm the greatest person who's ever lived and definitely greater than the rest of you. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I am related to the Messiah. I'm not him, but I'm his cousin. Do you realize that my mom and his mom are cousins? Have you ever known anyone that was even in any way, however remotely related to some however slight celebrity? I bet you do know them because they probably told you about it. My mother-in-law, who I love dearly, went to school and lived down the street and was only a couple years younger than Ernest Thompson, the man who wrote the screenplay to the movie On Golden Pond. Now, you know how I know that? Because <laughs> she's told me that a few times. But we all do that, right? I mean, I've done it. We all do it. But notice, John didn't do any of that. He doesn't explain at all how he's related to Jesus or how great he is. He literally summarizes who he is by simply saying, I baptize you with water. Now, that's what I just did last week. You imagine Joel Embiid, the night that he just, you know, just scored 70 points, being interviewed and summarizing who he is by saying, well, I just put a ball through a hoop. Something millions of people do every day in their driveways. That's all I do. <clears throat> now, John never shied away who God made him to be. He never shied away from what he was called to do. He did say, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. His, what he's doing here is not self-deprecation. He, he, it's not some false humility. See, what, what it is, is he, he never forgets who he is in comparison to the Messiah. And that's really what we're all called to do. We are all called to humility before God. Humility doesn't mean self-deprecation. God created each one of us. We are made in his image. We have worth. We have dignity. But when we are describing who we are and what we do, no matter how great we may be in the world's eyes, if we keep in mind that everything we do and everything we are comes from Him, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forevermore, right? Then we can speak of ourselves in humility. That's what John does here. John says, look, I baptize you with water. But, now he goes on to describe Christ. He who is mightier than I is coming. Notice that John does not, in the first place, describe Jesus as he who is more righteous than I. He doesn't describe Christ as he who is more loving than I. Now, Jesus is both of those things, and many more 
and infinitely more so than John, right? He could have said any of those things, uh, but what John is interested in comparing here is not so much Jesus' character, he'll do that in a second, but first of all, he's, he's interested in describing and comparing himself to Jesus' power. What does the Messiah, God in the flesh, what ability does he have that John, being only the forerunner to the Messiah, does not have? Well, he'll state this in a second, but before he states this ability that Jesus has, he, he makes a, a, a very amazing statement that kind of almost gives, the, gives away why Jesus can do what he does. Before John gets into Jesus' unique ability, he sets it in context of Jesus' unique personhood or his unique being, his ontology. John says, he who is mightier than I is coming, and before he talks about what he's able to do, he says, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, we might hear something like that and think about statements that we've heard from people today. You know, going back to Joel Embiid, you might have some uh, high school basketball player who is high school basketball player of the year for the whole nation. And in an interview, he may say, well, yeah, I mean, I appreciate this. I'm, I'm glad to be the high school player, but I'm really not worthy of holding Joel Embiid's water bottle, something like that. And, and that's akin, maybe, to what John is saying. But, but given their cultural climate, what he's saying is far more than that. See, again, we have to remember who John is. John is an Old Testament prophet. And again, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there are quite a few really important characters in the Old Testament that are described as servants of God or slaves of God, slaves of the Lord, servants of the Lord. Lots of people are called this. Moses is called over and over and over again the slave of the Lord. Joshua is called the slave of the Lord. David is the slave of God. And in Amos 3.7, all of the Old Testament prophets as a whole are referred to as slaves or servants of God. And so John, being an Old Testament prophet, is also a slave of the Lord or a servant of the Lord. That, that's what he is. Now, in those days, the lowest and most demeaning work for a slave, for a servant, was that work that pertained to the feet, to sandals, to feet. Any work that had to do with untying sandal straps or washing feet was given to the lowest servant in the house. In fact, there was a rabbinic statement that said, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. That was the one thing that a disciple was not supposed to do. It was too low. One scholar says, undoing the sandal thong was just too much. So when John says, 
that this one that's coming after me is greater than I, am I and I am not worthy to untie his sandal thongs. This slave of God is saying that he is not worthy of being Jesus' lowest slave. He's not worthy of being compared to that. Here again, I think, is another somewhat veiled, maybe not so veiled, statement affirming Jesus' divine status. When we think of Jesus and the power that he wielded, Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When we consider that in his divine nature, Jesus was omnipotent. What kind of power could he have wielded when he came to earth? If he chose to. And so if we think of that, in that sense, John, by saying I'm unworthy of even untying his sandal strap, he may almost be underselling Christ's power. But if this is the case, if Jesus is in fact God, then it makes sense that Jesus would bring a baptism that no one but he could bring. And John says that here. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here we see the great distinction between John and Jesus. Luke has already been setting the stage for this. If you just go back and and read the birth narratives and and what was said about each one and, and what happened at the birth of each and all of that, you see again and again and again how much greater Jesus is than John. I mean, it's stated many times. But here, when John is comparing their baptisms, we see the difference between sign and reality. We see the difference between John's role as preparer of the kingdom, who brings a water baptism, and Jesus' role as the fulfiller or the bringer of the kingdom who brings a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, grammatically speaking, this baptism of Holy Spirit and fire is... This baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire are not two different baptisms. Jesus is not bringing two different baptisms. Jesus is bringing one baptism to earth that has two different outcomes. Grammatically speaking, that's what it is. One baptism with two different outcomes. What Jesus brings is a baptism that results either in judgment or acquittal. A person either receives from Jesus the Holy Spirit that results in acquittal, or that person receives the fires of judgment. The word fire here almost always means fire of judgment and destruction. Jesus baptizes, his baptism brings, the Holy Spirit. God alone is the giver of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember, on the night that he's betrayed in the the, uh, upper, upper room discourse and all of that, 
He says, I'm going to, when I depart from here, I'm going to send you another comforter. He says, he speaks of the Spirit as another one of the same kind, another one that can bring and do what I do. The Holy Spirit is God as much as the Son is God. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Nicene Creed says this. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. This is why every time we have a baptism here, we say that the waters of this baptism don't save anybody. There's no magical power in the water. That's because a water baptism cannot save. John is saying that here. The only thing that can save is the Holy Spirit. And that baptism by the Holy Spirit is given only by Christ. There's no human being who isn't Jesus who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is a sign. It is not the reality. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and he also baptizes with fire. Now again, John the Baptist stands in a long strand of Old Testament prophets, and the prophets not only called Israel to repentance, but over and over again spoke of the fires of judgment. It's no different here. In fact, the, the last prophet to speak before 400 years of silence, Malachi, when he prophesied the coming of John, what does he say? He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts. It is the great and awesome day of the Lord. Isaiah 11, speaking of Jesus, what does Isaiah say? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, which we'll see in a minute, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus brings the fire of judgment. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You can see here in, in everything that Scripture says about him how far this is removed from some idea that Jesus was just some kind and misunderstood rabbi who kind of walked around and taught things and then was wrongly executed and now his followers just go on and teach his teachings. That this is so far removed from that. Jesus is the cosmic judge. God in the flesh who one day will return and bring judgment on the earth. Notice how John goes on to explain this very idea. That, that Jesus brings one baptism with two different judicial outcomes. 
His winnowing fork, Jesus' winnowing fork, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fork, some of you may know this, it was like a pitchfork that, that harvesters of wheat would use, and when they cleared their threshing floor where all of the wheat was laying that was harvested, they would kind of stick the pitchfork in and then throw the wheat up into the air, and the wheat would fall and the chaff would get blown away by the wind. And so then they had the, the wheat that they wanted and they would gather the wheat into their barn and they would burn the chaff because the chaff wasn't worth keeping. <clears throat> Who is holding the winnowing fork, according to John? It's the Messiah, Jesus he is the one coming with the winnowing fork, not John. I mean, again, John is the one that's always looked at as the grumpy one. John is the one who's always looked at as the, the, the preacher of judgment. But Jesus is the one who judges. John's not saying he's holding the winnowing fork. He's saying the Messiah is bringing the winnowing fork. The Messiah, Jesus, he is the one who builds his church. Notice what Luke calls this message from John. <laughs> Luke 3.18. So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. Again, notice that Luke calls both things good news. The, the gathering of wheat into the barn and the burning of the chaff are both good news. Why, how is that good news? Well, it's because we must never think that God's justice is bad. God's mercy is good, and God's justice is equally good. God's justice is good. It is good that God is going to bring justice on the wicked and judgment on this earth. And we understand this. We understand this temporally speaking. When we hear of a serial killer who gets caught and goes to prison for life, we say, man, I'm so glad that happened. We understand that justice is good. We kind of shudder when the justice comes from God. But that's the best justice there is. Human justice can always be fallible. God's justice is perfect and perfectly good. One scholar says this, judgment is not at first sight very good news, but it is an integral part of the gospel because unless we can be sure that in the end evil will be decisively overthrown, there is no ultimate good news. How can there be? If if this world does not end the way Revelation describes it, where all who are in the kingdom are in the immediate presence of God and all evil has been banished, then how is any of this ultimately good news? Now, a lot of people don't like this news. And Herod didn't. Herod the Tetrarch. We're told here, Luke just Luke kind of like gives us insight as to something that's going to happen in the future. It doesn't happen right here, but it says, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, 
who had been reproved by John for Herodias, he took his brother's wife, and for all the other evil things that he had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod Antipas loved his evil deeds so much that rather than repenting, which is what he should have done, he locked John up in prison, shut him, shut him away, and eventually he had John beheaded. So John preaches this good news and Herod doesn't like it. Now, it's been the history of the church. All throughout history, we have seen great, powerful people not like the good news of the gospel, and so they shut up the messengers. They get rid of the messengers. They kill the messengers. Now, you would think that of all the messengers, John would have had a hedge of protection around him. You would have thought, well, John, of all people, here he is, the forerunner to the Christ. He is going to be protected from any kind of evil and wrongdoing. But no. He's in prison and then beheaded not long after he began his ministry. In fact, as we'll see, he is concerned and starts to worry in his flesh, in his weakness, that Jesus isn't even the Christ, even though he so boldly proclaims that he is. Because John is wondering, why am I here? Why am I suffering for this? Why am I about to be killed? Sometimes we can wonder, why is so much evil allowed to be occurring right now? And Christians have wondered that throughout the ages. I mean, it's not just now. But, I mean, I ask you, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever looked around and thought, like, why, is there, why, why doesn't God put a stop to this? And the, see, the message of the Bible is that he is going to put a stop to it. Evil will not be able to continue forever. But the message of the Bible is that while God's final judgment is suspended, Christ is gathering his wheat into the barn. See, see, if we were to say, God, I want evil stopped now, that would mean that no more wheat is brought into the barn. Christian, how, how would you have liked judgment to have come before you were gathered into the barn? See, see we, as long as evil exists, as long as Christians are still being imprisoned for preaching the gospel, that just means there's more time for people to be brought into the barn. That's what Christ is doing now. He is bringing his wheat into the barn. He is building his church. And being harmed for the gospel's sake didn't stop, I mean, Isaiah. From what we know of Isaiah, he was sawn in two. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 11. That was probably Isaiah. Jeremiah, thrown into a cistern, treated horribly. Daniel, thrown into a lion's den. But you see, if if Jesus hadn't suspended his judgment so that he could gather the wheat into the barn, then none of us would have been saved. We all would have received God's justice rather than God's mercy. Now, 
If what John has says about Jesus, said about Jesus so far has been a bit shocking, that the one who's coming is God in the flesh, who's going to bring the Holy Spirit and fire, what we see happen here in these final two verses is, is even more shocking. Because remember what John came proclaiming. John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. All the people that were coming out to him, he was saying, you need to repent. You need to repent. That's what his message was. Repent and bear, bear uh, you know, in, in keeping with repentance. And then Luke just casually says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized, wait. It's like, what, what's going on here? Luke just flies through it like it's no big deal. You say, well, hold on, wait a second. Jesus was also baptized. What, has everything I've been taught about Jesus wrong? We, we've been taught our whole lives Jesus was sinless. Jesus didn't have any sin to repent of, and now here he is coming down and getting a baptism of repentance. What's going on? Well, we know <clears throat> from what the Father publicly declares of him, he's not baptized because he needs to repent of anything. That's made clear here in the text. Now, before we even look at what the Father says about him, just please note here that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all three present at one time in the baptism of Jesus. The, the Trinity has been screwed up uh, many times and in many ways and all throughout church history. And you've probably used an analogy that has been heretical if you didn't know it. I know I have. You know, somebody said, well, the Trinity, it's kind of like an egg. You know, you've got the, the yolk, the white, and the shell. Or, you know, the Trinity, it's like a wash cycle. You know, wash, rinse, and spin. That kind of thing. No, those are all her heresies. Uh, the, there's a heresy that's called modalism which understands that God is one person who operates in distinct modes at different times. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. No, here we see clearly the Son is present, the Spirit is present, and the Father is present all at one time. And look at what the God the Father says about his Son. God the Father says, here is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father is making it clear Jesus is not being baptized because of his sin. He has no sin to repent of. From the time he was conceived until this moment, for 30 years on the earth, Jesus has done nothing but please his Father. In fact, when Jesus comes to John, John looks at him, Luke doesn't tell us this, but John looks at Jesus and says, why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you, not you, me. The thief on the cross. We're getting a just punishment, but this man has done nothing wrong. Over and over again, all throughout the Bible, Jesus is sinless. So why, if he out of everyone who's ever lived is the only one who's ever perfectly pleased God the Father every second of his life, why is he baptized? Well, scholars are pretty united. His being baptized, one scholar writes, is the occasion of his official messianic installation. Another scholar, Jesus' baptism marks the inauguration of his public ministry. The baptismal event is the Father actively commissioning him. And we say, okay, great. 
So this is Jesus' ministry. It's beginning now. And we'll see. For the rest of, uh, of Luke's gospel, John fades into the background. Luke, uh, Jesus becomes the center of attention. This is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. But still, why baptism? Why couldn't it have been something else? And the reason is, is because by submitting to baptism, Jesus is identifying himself with those to whom he is and will be their Messiah. We'll see in the rest of Luke's gospel, Jesus is over and over and over again identifying with as their savior sinners right and the religious leaders will keep saying why is he hanging with sinners why is he with sinners doesn't he know these are sinners why is he dining with them why is he touching them why is he talking to them if he were really righteous like we are he'd stay clear of all these sinners and jesus looks at them and says because i didn't come to save the righteous i came to save sinners and that's who I'm going to be with as their Savior. Jesus came to be baptized, he tells John, to fulfill all righteousness. In order to be the Messiah, Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness so that he could exchange his righteousness for our sin. As one scholar says, by submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is identifying himself as those to whom he is the Messiah. He shows himself to be the representative sin bearer. He is marked out publicly as the one who, knowing no sin, was made to be sin. Here in Jesus is the one, the only one ever who by his omnipotent power could have crushed all of his enemies. No problem. He is the one who had the divine power to rule over the world and all the rulers of the world, and he had the unblemished record of the only human being who didn't earn death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus earned nothing but life and eternal life. He could have gone straight to heaven. The only one who did not have to die, yet willingly became the lowest of servants. Isn't it amazing that the night before he went to the cross, he actually washed the feet of his disciples. He took the place of lowest servant, and he even washed the feet of the one who later that night was going to betray him. And if that weren't enough, he stooped so low that he went to the cross so that our sin could be transferred to him and so that his righteousness could be transferred to us. And that's what we remember when we come to the table.